0: And we're live. Hello, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. Welcome to Author Spotlight. Today, my guest is the incredible, amazing, uber-talented Jennifer Haig. I am absolutely thrilled to have her here for Mercy Street, this gorgeous book, this gorgeous cover. I cannot tell you how excited I am to talk to her about this book, to ask so many questions, but I promise we're going to stick to half an hour. Jennifer, thank you for joining me. Thank you for
1: having me, Rachel. This is fun.
0: I'm so excited. So I'm just going to read your bio from the back of the book quickly. So listeners who are not familiar with all of your amazing resume will uh, get to know you a little bit. Jennifer Haig is the author of the short story collection News from Heaven and six best best-selling and critically acclaimed novels. That's right. Six, including Mrs. Kimball, Faith and Heat and Light which I absolutely adored, which was named a best book of 2016 by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal and NPR. Her books have won the Penn Hemingway Award, the Massachusetts Book Award and the Penn New England Award in fiction and have been translated widely. She lives in New England, and I have to tell you all a personal story before we get started. Jennifer is so cool. I met her at a party. I didn't even know who she was. We were just chatting along, and then the next day, I found out it was the author that I absolutely adore. It didn't even come up. She's that amazing. I loved her before I knew who she was. So, Jennifer, please tell me, what is Mercy Street about?
1: Okay, well, Mercy Street is a novel that grew out of my experience volunteering at a women's clinic. Um, It was something I I did some years ago, not with any intention of writing about it. I I did it because I really believed in the work they were doing at this clinic. So what I was doing there was answering a hotline. Uh, There were calls from women who had questions about contraception or kind of gynecology matters. And often um, there were women who wanted to schedule abortions. That wasn't the only thing the clinic did, but it was maybe, I don't know, maybe 40% of what the clinic did was was terminations. So when someone called to schedule an abortion, their first stop was to talk to someone like me, one of the volunteers, and we would talk her through the procedure. We would answer her questions, um, pretty routine stuff. And I had been doing this for a little while. um, And when it kind of became clear to me that, yeah, I really do need to write about this. It it was a a really compelling experience. um, And... Although I've been pro-choice, pro-choice my whole, you know, adult life, um, it really deepened my understanding of what that means and why it's so important. Um, so, yeah, I'll stop right there. But that's <laughs> essentially what it's about. The main character, uh, Claudia Birch, is a counselor at a clinic, kind of like the one where I worked. Although she's not a volunteer, she's a that's her full-time gig. Um, and the experience of working in this clinic and especially um, of walking past a gauntlet of protesters every single day when she reports to work, uh, has shaped her life in very unusual ways. So that's really the heart of the story.
0: So Claudia is definitely the heart of the story, but then you also have a large part is her weed dealer. He has he plays a big part in this book, right? He actually sells her marijuana. They smoke marijuana together, right? And it is not no. legal. This is yeah, it's he's
1: sort of like, I think of him like a first responder in Claudia's life. So, You know, she's working in this incredible pressure cooker atmosphere at this clinic. Um, There are, you know, threatening calls all the time, there are bomb threats, there are, you know, protesters who threaten her physically. This is part of her daily at the clinic. So this is the way she has found to cope with her life. Um, And she's struck up this odd friendship with her weed dealer. I mean, in a way, I mean, it's just—it's odd because they don't know each other's last names. They don't know very much about each other, but they've actually spent kind of a long time together because she shows up to buy weed and they watch TV. They watch car shows and have these kinds of conversations about cars and life. And, and so Timmy plays um, a major role in the story. Uh, there's also um, another customer of, of Timmy's, a guy named Anthony, who, who also buys weed from him, um, who's important to the story as well. So, so those three characters—that's sort of the the Boston part of the story.
0: Yeah, and so I have to say that when I first read about this book, I was like, "Wait, how does someone like you know Claudia fit in with the weed dealer? Like, how does this all weave together? And, you know, and Anthony, and it totally does." Um, but these are hot topics, right? Smoking marijuana, um, protesting at abortion clinics, pro-choice, or this is a clearly pro-choice book. Are you finding that people are afraid to talk about this book or afraid to talk to you?
1: Mm, you know, no, I haven't really found that. Although I will say my awareness of all of that made it really hard to finish the book. Um, really? You know, there was, yeah, I mean, there was a point uh, a couple of years into it where I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? Why did I think this was a good idea? I'm going to have to publish this thing and then I'm going to have to deal with whatever reactions people have and you know people are have very strong feelings on this subject you will you can't meet anyone who has no opinion about abortion everyone has an opinion and by writing about it you sort of open yourself up to you know whatever whatever people uh feel on this topic uh, so I my awareness that I was going to have to face that Made me kind of drag my feet a little bit in finishing the book, I think, had I known it was going to come out in a global pandemic and I would never meet anybody, I might have not been so nervous about it. But I mean, truly, I have barely left my house in promoting this book. So, you know, I'm quite insulated from everyone.
0: So I'm really glad that you did finish. I was so surprised to hear that you dragged your feet because it felt so um, visceral and so like such an important book and in story, I felt like you, for you, it was important to write this book, but you know, as I'm reading. And so I'm so glad you did, <laughs> um, but I wanted to also mention, um, so I, you know, I back in high school, I was an escort into a clinic in Philadelphia. And uh, so not the same, nearly the same as Claudia or what you did, but I did have, you know, I had to be trained And it was a very scary thing to do and i thought that you captured that fear of walking through that gauntlet of people into the clinic so well can you just talk about that a little bit and and how much you decided to share or not share in the book
1: Uh, well you know the first scene in the book is claudia looking out the window of the clinic counting the protesters on ash wednesday so the novel takes place in boston possibly the most Catholic city in America. So Ash Wednesday is a big protest day. There are lots of people out there, you know, with the, the ash on their foreheads. There are priests, there are monks. There are a lot of dudes protesting. Um, and, you know, it was the first scene I actually wrote, which, you know, it's so strange because it never works out that way. The first thing you write never ends up being the first scene in the book. This is the first time it's ever happened to me. It is
0: actually that's amazing.
1: I wrote. Yeah. It was Claudia... And wow. uh, one of her coworkers standing at the window counting the protesters. First thing I wrote. And it, and bam, it's the first thing you see in the book.
0: And had how much of that um, fear, like, did you hold back on showing how scary that was? Or do you think that you really put it out there? Like, no,
1: why hold back? I mean, that's part of the story. Do you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought you
0: captured it so well because for me it was terrifying, and, and I don't think that people understand mm-hmm. how much you know bravery is involved just to walk into a, a Mercy Street, a, a Planned Parenthood clinic, right? Whether mm-hmm. you're going for general health care, which many people go for, or or for an abortion itself, right? Well, that's uh,
1: the only way too, because. You know, most of the people who come into the clinic are not there for abortions, actually. But the protesters seem unaware of this distinction. I don't know. The assumption seems to be that everyone who goes through that door is about to have an abortion and they react accordingly. So, you know, there are lots and lots of women who are just there to, like, just have their exam and get their prescription for their birth control pills. And and you you find yourself facing off with some some pretty angry people.
0: Right. Because as you say over and over in the novel, which I think is so great that women have parts with expiration dates or void the warranty, right? Like we, we need to get checkups, right? And you, where do you go if not to a clinic like this?
1: Right. I mean, it is just basic maintenance. and And mm-hmm. you know, it's part of what I loved about this clinic, actually. It was probably the most inclusive, diverse space I'd ever encountered in the city. Because if you have a female body, you're dealing with this stuff. You're dealing with contraception, Um, you know, annual checkups, you get UTIs, you need antibiotics, you may have an unplanned pregnancy, you may not, but there are all sorts of services offered at this clinic that you need no matter what part of the city you're from or how much money you have or what color you are or your ethnic background, you know, it is the great equalizer in a way. It cuts across all lines. Let's talk about the cover of this book because I think this is important. (laughs) Yes, yes. I love this cover so much. I do Um, too it's, and it's, I love it for several reasons. First, because it is, it is actually handmade. So, so Alison Saltzman, the art director at Echo, actually cut out these paper dolls from construction paper. This is not Photoshop. You can, if you look at their heads closely, you can see they're a little pointy, like when little kids cut construction paper. Um, So they're real paper dolls. And I love it that they're different colors. And that's, that's important. I mean, of course, on the book, they're, you know, pink and they're pink and
0: purple. They're not just different Um, colors, right? Right. right. So
1: it's not to be too literal, but in fact, you know, that was a striking feature of this clinic. um, How, how people from all walks of life, all backgrounds found themselves there. Um, You know, a lot of my books, probably all my books in some way are about class. It's a subject that is, kind of at the heart of everything I write. And Mercy Street is about where class intersects with being female. Um, And what you see a lot of in the book is how having an unplanned pregnancy lands differently on different women, depending on your circumstances and your resources. So there's one patient that Claudia counsels, um, who's a senior in high school. You know, she goes to prep school, she goes to a country day. Um, And she is trying to decide between Yale and Princeton and finds herself unexpectedly pregnant. So she makes an appointment and her mother brings her to the clinic for an abortion. On the same day, Claudia sees another young woman, roughly the same age, maybe a couple years older, who's a homeless heroin addict. And she found out she was pregnant because she overdosed in a gas station restroom. And the manager found her, called 911, an ambulance came, took her to the emergency room, and they suspected she was pregnant, so they gave her an ultrasound. That's how her pregnancy was detected. And and yet these two young women are both, you know, faced with the same the same problem, but they have very different resources for dealing with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's
0: amazing. And I love um There's one point in the book where uh, one of the counselors is actually pregnant Mm -hmm. and she sees how different people ask her questions differently, right? So younger people are talking to her about this pregnancy with more excitement, like, oh, when I'm a mother or whatever, versus some of the older women who might be coming in who are a little more maybe feeling bad because their time has passed or right or they have a pregnancy that isn't going to, you know, isn't going to make it to the end. Uh, to full term, and, and I just thought that you captured all of that so beautifully. Um, so I just want to read a little bit um, this a quick section, which um, is one of my absolute favorites. If anybody has it has the book, it's on page ninety two, um, and it's the section. It's the section where Claudia says, um, "There's always a reason." She said, "Define good, right? So why would someone have an abortion? The reasons were many and varied." Occasionally, a patient would volunteer hers as though trying to convince herself. My son is autistic and daycare won't take him. I can't handle another kid. I got fired, evicted. I got into law school. I'm afraid to go off my meds. I just need to finish high school, chemo, probation, my PhD, my tour of duty. My mother would never forgive me. I want a different life. The point is, what's a good reason? Who gets to decide? That is just gorgeous. I love that passage. How long did that take you to write?
1: You know, I don't remember. I feel like I've been living with those sentences for a long time, so I I couldn't tell you. But I will say that um, in that same scene that you read, Claudia tells a story. She's having lunch with a male friend of hers, and she tells a story Um, about a call that came into the hotline. And this is something that happened to me when I was volunteering on the hotline, and this was the moment when I knew I was gonna have to write about this experience. Um, There was a woman who called and she um, wanted to schedule an abortion. A lot of the women who called for abortions, you know, they were were very clear on their decision. They had clearly thought it all through and they really just wanted to get the appointment as soon as possible and get on with their lives there were other women who needed to talk about it a little bit and wanted to process it. And this caller was one of those. She wanted to talk about her reasons. And what she told me was, um, I can't be pregnant because if my ex finds out I'm pregnant, he's going to come to my house and shoot my kids. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what she told me. And, and, I that oh that it is exactly the, the chills. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Oh and and that is exactly the story that Claudia tells when she's having lunch with her friend. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost verbatim. What happened to me when I answered this call on the hotline? Um, and you know, Claudia says to her friend, Well, I, I can't fact check that. I I don't know, maybe she's just paranoid, maybe she's delusional, or maybe not. And and this is the thing, no total stranger can pass judgment on somebody's reasons for having an abortion. People's lives are complicated, and someone on the outside can never know what's really going on, what the reasons might be that would lead someone to this decision. And that's why I think it's crucial that women be able to make this decision in peace and privacy, and not be second-guessed by strangers, and not be hamstrung by the law. And um, you know, that's yes, fiction behind the writing of this (laughs) book. I really believe it, and if I. If I, if I didn't know it before, I sure know it now.
0: Yeah. I think you also touch on this. Um, there's still, you should have your own reason, but then, uh, woman after woman in this clinic, you say in just a few pages earlier, they come back again saying, it was all my fault. It was my Mm -hmm. fault. Um, you know, that's
1: what the culture tells you, you know, um, a lot of people who are opposed to abortion say, well, you know, you had your chance to make your choice that, you know, you should have used birth control. You shouldn't have had sex. You should have thought this through before. So you know, deal with it. The consequences are, um, you know, it's your own doing. Um, and yeah, it, yeah. It, but
0: but then I love that Claudia in the book. She wants to say, "But you had help, <laughs> right? It wasn't just always, you."
1: Always. I mean, every abortion in the history of humanity has had a man involved, and it's striking how seldom that's part of the conversations we have about it.
0: Yeah. Oh my God. I just thought you did that so beautifully. So I want to switch a little bit and uh, sort of zoom out just a bit to go back to all the main characters. Um, One of the uh, sort of unifying themes here is they're all, they seem very lonely, right? They they seem, they're Mm -hmm. very alone in the world. Um, Can you talk about that?
1: Oh yeah. Well, you know, it's, Claudia is a very isolated person in part because of the work she does. Somebody who does not work in this environment can't possibly understand what it's like. So it really makes her feel separate from other people. Only her coworkers um, can begin to understand what her daily is like. So that's very isolating. Timmy's isolated, Timmy the weed dealer, simply because he can't leave his apartment. He's waiting for people to come by. If, if he's not home, he doesn't sell any weed. So he's, he's really having a COVID experience before there was COVID. He's trapped inside you know, waiting for someone to text or call and stop by and and buy a bag. Um, There's another character we haven't talked about yet that I think we should, he's sort of the antagonist to Claudia in the book. Um, From the beginning, I knew that that there would have to be such a person um, that would probably be a man. And um, the character I created is named Victor Prime. He's an anti-abortion, I guess I would say activist. He's somebody strongly opposed to abortion. where this character came from is, I think it's worth talking about. So I grew up in western Pennsylvania, tiny little coal town. It's northern Appalachia, um, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And um, it's a socially conservative place, overwhelmingly Catholic. I went to 12 years of Catholic school, so I grew up hearing about the evils of abortion. I mean, I was told that abortion was bad even before I understood how you get pregnant. So, so wow, that brain wow. was constantly going in my childhood. Uh, that's, that's where I'm coming from. That's my background. So I'm very, very familiar with the positions of people who oppose abortion. That didn't take any research at all. I've known those people my whole life. Mm-hmm. Like I never met anybody who was pro-choice wow. until I went to college.
0: Wow. So, oh my right. God. True story.
1: So, so when I thought about who was going to be this antagonist to Claudia in the book, um, I thought of where I grew up and I thought of how when you're driving around there, um, if you drive 10 miles in any direction from the house where I grew up, you will pass a sign Mm -hmm. along the highway or in somebody's pasture, um, somebody's yard. And then with some anti-abortion slogan, you know, abortion stops a beating heart. Mm -hmm. It's a child, not a choice. All those slogans. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw those signs all through my childhood and they're still up there. I mean, I don't know how they I can't got even there. imagine
0: that when you say oh, that. Like, yeah. I can't even imagine oh. they're still there.
1: They're still there. And it's, it's not, I mean, there are lots of them. It's, it's a common sight. Hmm. And these are not mass-produced signs. They're handmade. So somebody bought the lumber and cut the lumber and bought the paint and painted the sign and then took it somewhere and planted it in the ground. And when I was thinking about the antagonist character to Claudia, I thought about who makes those signs? Who did that? What kind of person feels so strongly about this and is so moved to take action that he does it in this very concrete way? And the character I invented was Victor Prime. He's an older guy. He was a long distance trucker for most of his life. Uh, He's a Vietnam vet. When the story opens, he's retired from trucking. And what he does with his time and his retirement is make these signs and drive around planning them along the highway. So that's your first look of Victor Prime. Um, and you know it was very natural to me to place that character in the environment I grew up in, because yeah. you know that's it's a world I know, I know very well. And I know that guy very well. I mean, I don't know his, you know deepest, darkest motivations, but I've seen him around. So he it, it was not a hard character to create.
0: And yet I was surprised. I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but I'm just dying to ask you this, okay? So okay, be
1: the, careful though, no spoilers, no spoilers, no
0: spoilers. No spoilers, But I do want to say that the people who are anti-abortion are not um, necessarily people who are deeply in their heart believing that this is murder. There's, there's sort of other, right, motivations yeah. behind it. Oh, so- yeah,
1: yeah. And I, I can talk about that. So, you know, a lot of the people I know who are opposed to abortion... Um, feel this way for religious reasons. And that is more comprehensible to me. Um, right. But those aren't the only reasons people have for opposing abortion. And for someone like Victor Prine, it's not about that at all. He's not, he's not Christian. He's not religious. In fact, he's an atheist. Yeah. His reasons for opposing abortion are a lot darker than that. And it really yeah. has to do with his feelings about who should be having kids, who's having too many kids and, um, you know, how to control this problem. When, what Victor feels really is that white women shouldn't have abortions because white there should be more white babies being born and, and fewer, you know, children of color. So he has no problem at all with women of color having abortions. It's right. when white women do it that it, it senses him. And it, and it really goes to this feeling of losing control losing control of everything his sense that you know society has changed so much and there isn't a place for someone like him and he doesn't like the direction things are going and he's really threatened by um you know people who are not like him becoming prominent and and simply having the numbers you know he fears being part of a minority an experience he's never had
0: so, I love yeah I just yeah. love that that's how you brought race in right yeah. and and yeah. because that is another huge part of what's happening um at the clinic you know with the protests all of this mm-hmm. and it was just done you know I could tell how well you knew that character mm-hmm. so um you've received unbelievable praise from many 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 reviewers congratulations mm-hmm. um and one of the things that people say over and over again which I believe a thousand percent, is that you know your characters inside, outside, upside down Mm -hmm. from every single perspective. How do you do it? How do you sit down and get to know your characters?
1: Well, you know, part of it is um, by design. So at the beginning, before I start writing a novel, I spend some time writing about the characters. I'm writing little biographies of them. And so the first several months I'm working on a book, I'm not actually writing chapters. I'm trying to figure out who these people are. And so I've done that for. I fun. love that. Yeah. I love that. Every time I do it with every book. And you know, most of that will never appear in the novel, but some of it will. And you never know what you're going to discover about these characters when you start writing about their childhoods, for example, you yeah. know, or, or writing about their first Cheesy ramen. In love or, or your first job or your first heartbreak, or you know some of this may or may not feed into the story, but you need to know the answers to these questions. Um, in order to, to have these people be really alive on the page.
0: That is just masterclass advice. That's how you got to your cheesy ramen, right? <laughs> and, and the fosters, right? And awesome. just the details, right? The way that you mention parts of their lives and the past is, you know, as if you, they're people you grew up with. It's just amazing. So um, I wanted to ask you also, what was the hardest part about writing this book? Like, Was it getting to know the anti-choice? side a little bit more? Was it sort of, there are so many parts that would seem hard to me. What was the hardest for you? Mm, I mean, the hardest really,
1: it's the same as with every book. It's, it's hard to believe in something that doesn't yet exist. So it's, you know, and you know this yourself as a writer. Um, it's just, you, you feel like you're talking yourself into something at the beginning and you are, guess what? You absolutely are. It's, um, it's the hardest thing in the world to make something out of nothing. But that's what you do as a novelist. And certainly for the whole first draft, um, I live in fear of not finding the right ending for the book. You know, we've all had this experience as readers where you start reading a novel, you fall in love with the characters, you love the language, you're completely sucked into the story. And the ending is so disappointing that you just want to throw the book across the room. Yes. And you're not going to remember that as the book with the great opening chapter. You're going to remember it as the book with the lousy ending. Yeah. And, and so I always have that fear when I'm starting something new. What if I don't find the right ending? And so until I get through a complete first draft and write the ending, um, I don't trust what I have. So, so the, I would say the first year is always the hardest of everything I've ever written.
0: Even Jennifer Haig is scared of the ending. Oh That's such a
1: yeah. Oh, That's and that does change, relief. and it doesn't get less scary. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think writing novels gets easier. I mean, this is my seventh book; it has not gotten easier. I'm sad to say. Um, you know, when I finished my first novel, I thought, "All right, well, now I know how to write a novel. This is not going to be hard now." And what I learned was, "Oh, I only know how to write that novel," and and most of most of the lessons I learned in writing Mrs. Kimball, my first book, were not portable. They did not apply to the second book I wrote. So it's it was sort of a disappointing thing to discover that, oh, wow, it actually doesn't get easier. It, it probably gets harder because you're trying to do more difficult things you know, to keep it interesting for yourself, you, yeah. unless you just want to keep writing the same book over and over again. You kind know, of to do that. This
0: is such a relief to hear that even you are saying this.
1: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Thank no, you. I mean, every writer knows this. And I will say this also, um, with you about to publish your second book, that's the hardest one was for me. The second one almost killed me. Um, and they're all difficult in different ways. But the second one is hardest because you feel some pressure. You feel like, well, somebody's actually going to pay attention and possibly, you know, reject this book or criticize it or hate it or whatever. But the first book, you're just trying to live through the writing of it. Like you don't know any better. It's, you know, well said. Yeah. I mean, like the first time you run a marathon, you're not trying to win. You're trying not to die while you do it. (laughs) So well
0: said. And that's the first
1: book. So in a way it's, it's a kind of freedom that you'll never have again with that first book, because no one in the whole world cares if you finish it. No one cares. (laughs) Like the people who love you will pretend they care. They don't care. You know, that's your own private insanity, that first novel. So, oh my God, I love this. I love this advice. Completely true. So I think if you make it through writing a second novel, then you're probably a lifer and you're going to keep doing it.
0: Let's hope. Right. For me, I'm hoping. And I hope your number eight is coming. So I, right. Fingers crossed. I can't wait for your next one. Okay. So um, before we wrap up one question that my listeners always love to love me to ask, they love to hear your answers is uh, what kind of advice do you have for new writers?
1: Mm, You have to read a lot. You have to read every single day and you have to read the best, the best work you can possibly find. Um, I, one thing, one side effect of writing novels for me is that I can't enjoy trash anymore. Like, I have no guilty pleasures. And it, there was a time when I could enjoy, like, a beach read. I, I can't anymore. It, it's kind of like when you're on a crowded airplane and the person next to you is hacking and coughing. You feel like, ooh, I'm, I'm being exposed to something terrible. That's what bad language is like. So, you just can't read crap. Um, you have to read a lot, you have to read good things. And, and I think it's also important to write about what you read and articulate to yourself what makes it good. Um, because that's how you- You mean crystal- like keep notes
0: on the books that you read? Or,
1: or journals. Some people keep journals. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I write about my reading a lot. Like, what can I learn from this writer? What does this writer do that I envy? And, and it's, always, it's always useful to pay attention to what makes you envious in somebody else's book. You know, that's where all the learning is.
0: That is brilliant. I just love that. I have to say, sometimes I hear people tell me they don't have time to read because they're writing so much. Yeah, and I was like, yeah. "What? What are you talking about? Right? Like, how? How can you write if you can't read?
1: You can't. It's like starving yourself. And you know, it's that you get your nourishment from reading good work. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's garbage in, garbage out. If you if if you read bad stuff, it's going to affect you. It's gonna it's gonna change the way you write. And if you don't read anything, I think you atrophy. it's 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 not good for you,
0: yeah. And did I do I remember that um I heard you say once that you also only read um when you're writing a book, right? You'll read sort of older books at the time, so you're not influenced by contemporary writers. Uh, I'm careful about
1: that because, you know, it's true that without realizing it, you can mimic what you're reading. So when I'm in the in the composition stage, like the first draft, I don't read contemporary. Fiction. I can read um, nonfiction. I can read poetry. I can read in French. I can read 19th century novelists because there's no danger of of copying Dostoevsky. Like that's, that's not a it's not a problem. Um, but I don't read contemporary fiction when I'm writing a first draft. Then later, when I'm revising, it's fine and I can. Yeah. I am I am mindful of that with the first draft because I think I am an unconscious mimic. We all are.
0: I think we yeah. all are.
1: That's how we learn to do this.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me. I absolutely you, loved adored Mercy Street. Everyone can see this gorgeous hand-cut cut-out cover. May you sell many many copies. Thank you. Thank
1: you, Rachel.